Welcome to the Junior League of Houston podcast, She Becomes. I'm Christina Frederick, your host for 2022-2023. Today, I am so excited to be joined by Dr. Elizabeth Mackingville, the Clinical Director of McLean OCD Institute. She is such a light in the Houston community and how she's not only normalizing the discussion of mental health, but doing everything she can to lead the charge on emphasizing the importance of early intervention. She chats about destigmatizing mental health, the different types of anxiety disorders, how to get involved and what to look for in your practitioner. Without further ado, let's bring her on. Welcome, Elizabeth. We are so excited to have you as part of our Junior League podcast today. I would love for you just to give a quick little intro about yourself, if you don't mind. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. And I'm excited to join you guys and hopefully share some useful information or some resources that might help someone. So my name is Liz Mackingbell. I am from Houston, born and raised here and just excited to be back here. I've lived in some different places, but um, my roots are here in Houston and it's a community that I absolutely love. I have started to really make my mark in the community to be focused on mental health, mental health um, advocacy, and then of course, treatment and education as well. And I've really shifted over the years. So I started as a mental health advocate, sharing my own journey and story and struggle with OCD and anxiety and transitioned um, into being my career. So went to school and received my degrees and the training that I needed to have to be able to now be a clinician and a director. So I'm the director of the McLean OCD Institute here in Houston. I'm on faculty of Harvard Medical School and really spend my life, um, hopefully, treating patients and helping them get the outcomes they want or doing education in the community to help people get to the right resources. You know, across the board, one of the things we see and know is that people with OCD and anxiety, it often goes untreated, misdiagnosed, or improperly treated. And so my goal is really to shift that and in the Houston community, hopefully be a voice that can help people get to the right treatment quicker. I love that. How long have you been at McLean? I have been here at McLean. Um, actually, it was funny that we we used to be the Houston OCD program and we became McLean right during the middle of COVID, March of 2020. And so I started a little bit before that. So about two and a half years I've been here in this role. How exciting. And so you had mentioned kind of growing up, you didn't really see yourself where you are today. Growing up, where did you see yourself and kind of how did your story just naturally shift you into this role and being the advocate that you are? Totally. Yeah. You know, um, my parents played a huge role in that. So I'll talk about that in a second, but you know, when I first was diagnosed with OCD, the, the level of severity and disability that myself and my family experienced and witnessed really left us kind of thinking that my life would be quite different in the sense that I think we started to accept that I may not be able to fully function. I may not be a contributing member of society. And we certainly never imagined I would, you know, graduate high school more the last college and end up getting my PhD and, and then my MBA and, you know, running the clinic that I do and being able to fully function because when you're in the throes of mental health and in the throes of mental illness, like we were for many years during my adolescence, it's really hard to see that light. Um, but with appropriate treatment and resources, we finally started to see that. And I think or probably around 17 or 18, when I'd gotten good treatment, I was still really struggling. And I actually was at a point in my life then where I believed and had started to like 
embody that I was somebody who would always struggle with mental illness and that that was just a part of my story and a part of my life. Now I, I feel very differently about that. I feel like, yes, I have a diagnosable mental health condition, but it doesn't have to be a continued struggle. You can manage it and have freedom. But at the time I was 17 and actually my parents, um, who are big philanthropists here in Houston and everyone now knows my dad through all the Astros stuff lately. So as he's crazy bets that people think he's making a lot of money on when it's really just a hedge for all this free furniture he gives back. Um, what happened is, is we were actually doing the Bush Clinton tsunami fund. It was when I was 17, it was here in Houston. We're raising a lot of money and awareness for it. And at the time, my dad, one of the celebrities that was here actually was Dr. Phil. And my dad was like, oh, my daughter has OCD. Like you should highlight her story because we want to make a difference in helping educate people. And it really started there. My advocacy journey started in, in the sense that it started obviously with Dr. Phil on national platform. But then what happened is locally, my dad really wanted us to change the stigma of mental health and see what we could do. So we started doing a lot of work here in Houston, which led to a lot of other advocacy opportunities. I became the first ever national spokesperson for OCD and did a lot of like national shows at that point and talked really broadly about my illness. As I did, what, what was really inspiring and fascinating to me was that while treatment was life-changing and life-saving, there was also so much that came from being able to help someone else. And my story was kind of turned in, like I was able to take my pain and turn it into a purpose. And there was something good that can come from my struggle that really shifted things for me. And that I think is when I knew I want to make a career out of this. I want to be able to help people on a much bigger level, right? Advocacy was great, but I also wanted to be able to treat people the way that I had been treated. That's amazing. It's so neat to see kind of how your personal story, and like you had said, you thought that you might be in a very different place today um, without kind of walking the walk that you have and all of the venues and things that you have had access to that have helped shift that um, and kind of change that for your outcome and for all of those that you've touched and been able to assist along the way, I'm sure, is numerous um, when you're looking at numbers. And I know that one of those things that you were able to do is actually start a foundation, the Peace of Mind Foundation. Would you mind kind of sharing kind of where that came from and what its purpose was in the society? Totally. Yeah. I also started Peace of Mind when I was 17 in 2005. And it really was, you know, I knew and and still know and feel very blessed that I had a family who had financial resources and connections to be able to not just find the treatment that I needed, but afford the treatment that I needed. And it really stuck with me and, and continues to bother me that many people don't have those same opportunities to manage their illness because of financial barriers. And so Peace of Mind was really created for that reason. We first started with doing a lot of scholarships for treatment, a lot of funding, and then we transitioned to um, being a really big educational resource. So having a website that's full of videos and content and our goal became like, can we really have an easily accessible place where people can get good information about OCD right. and really understand what it is versus is not and not get stuck in Google. Um, and so it just it just became an incredible resource. And then on top of that, we did a lot of advocacy and connection and education. And we were actually, we merged with the International OCD Foundation also during COVID. So in 2020, um, November of 2020, and it just has kind of been taken to a new platform and was just really exciting for me to get to partner with a bigger organization. And not to say that I offloaded peace of mind because I'm very actively involved in IOCDF. I'm on their board and I've been their spokesperson since I was 17, but I really was able to say, okay, here's what we're doing. Here's what you're doing. Like, let's do this together instead of doing isolated efforts. Right. Well, and sometimes more minds can make it even bigger and greater than what it started. That's so exciting. 
Um, outside of the foundation, I know that you work a lot with OCD, but there's also generalized anxiety disorder um, that a lot of people might not realize exists. Would you mind sharing with our listeners kind of the difference between the two um, and how they might operate? Yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of different anxiety disorders and, and OCD kind of falls kind of into it, but it's kind of its own category. So first we'll talk about OCD. So OCD is obsessive compulsive disorder, and it is not what most of you think it is, right? A lot of people in society's like general perception or understanding of OCD is, oh, you should see my coworker's desk. Like she's so OCD, or you should see my mother-in-law's kitchen and the way she cleans. Like she's so OCD. That's not what OCD is, right? I love my fridge. If you go to my house and open my fridge, you'll be like, wow, Liz, you're beautifully organized. I love that. I love organization. Like it makes me happy. It kind of gives me peace of mind and I like feel good about it. That is not my OCD. It's not intrusive. It's not unwanted. It's not disabling. And in fact, I find some pleasure in it. I might not like when people disrupt my systems, right? Or yeah. like, but I, I enjoy the outcome very, very different than OCD. OCD is a disabling disorder. It's one of the top 10 reasons people file for disability worldwide and one of the most prevalent mental health conditions across the globe. It affects about 3% of our population globally. It costs the U.S. economy over $8 billion a year in lost productivity. It is a debilitating, devastating mental health condition when, when it's untreated. OCD is made up of unwanted intrusive thoughts. Those are the obsessions and compulsions, which are rituals or behaviors that they do to get rid of the thought, but they do not find pleasure in. So again, this is very different than what society often thinks of when they think of OCD. Most people use it as an adjective. So we've coined this amazing tagline of OCD is not an adjective because we're really trying to transition that this is not people who like things organized or like you find pleasure in it or it's an exciting thing or you can't, right? That is something that is part of your personality, part of your characteristics, a part of who you are, how you function. And often individuals who are kind of like that is like type A, like myself, right? We'll talk about how it helps us function, like having things organized, like it helps me feel good and feel kind of like structured, very different than OCD, which is disruptive, anxiety provoking, and, and very fear-based. Along with OCD, there's related disorders. So these include body dysmorphic disorder. So the body dysmorphic disorder, BDD, is a disorder where individuals see themselves in a distorted lens or image, and they engage in lots of different behaviors or activities to try to address that. It's very disabling and increases depression and high suicide rates. Um, what we call BFRBs, so body-focused repetitive behaviors. These are like hair pulling, skin picking, previously known as like trichotillomania, very common disorders that are anxiety-based where individuals engage in these behaviors. And then hoarding disorder also falls in the OCD and related disorder category. When we think about anxiety disorders, it is very common for people with OCD to also have an anxiety disorder or people with anxiety disorders to also have OCD or related disorder. Anxiety disorders, there's many of them, right? Under anxiety disorders is panic disorder, it's phobias, right? Which we know what phobias are. Generalized anxiety disorder, right? So where you kind of have this general anxiety that, that is kind of there and, and there's a lot of... Um, behaviors or avoidance behaviors that you engage in to not, to try to not experience the anxiety. Right. Um, and lots of other disorders as well that are anxiety-based when you think of PTSD, a trauma-based disorder that has a huge anxiety component and others as well. I mean, even, you know, substance use eating disorders can also be, have anxiety as a big part of, of their diagnostic criteria and the way they present. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for kind of outlining that. If you, somebody is listening that maybe is thinking I could be on the border of there, where do you generally suggest that someone seeks treatment or assistance and kind of what would be the first step that you would kind of recommend taking? 
Yeah, this is the million dollar question I get every day is like, when <laughs> And I actually have a pretty simple response. Never in my life have I had someone say we sought treatment too early. Every day I hear people say we wish we would have sought treatment sooner. So if you're going to a good clinician, we are not here to take your money. We have long wait lists. We don't, we don't need the clients, right? We're here right. us. And so it should be our job even to say something like, hey, like, here's what I see. Here's what I would look out for. But like your child doesn't need treatment yet. Like they're not at a level where they need treatment. But typically, if you're questioning whether or not you should seek treatment, you probably should seek treatment. Again, preventative care is always better than reactive care. In the mental health world, we use the slogan of before stage four. And we talk a lot about how if you had cancer and you knew it, you wouldn't wait until it's at stage four to seek treatment. You'd get treatment as soon as you could to try to prevent the progression. With mental health, we often wait until we're in crisis. I see this all the time, every day where people are saying like, my kidney's helpless. And then it's like, oh, well, okay, they're better this week. Or we're going to like, they're doing okay. And then it's like, they come back to me when it's like, we're in crisis. We need you now. And it's like, yeah. And I actually wish you would seek treatment before crisis and that we would take it really seriously and make it a priority. I think stigma, I think schools, I think there's a lot of things that play roles in that, that are really detrimental to the way we understand treatment. Right. We think like, treatment it's because our kid is severe and they're really struggling like why why can't treatment be preventative and proactive and why does it have the stigma on it so what I would say is if you're questioning it you should seek treatment with that being said and maybe we're going to talk about that next there is good and bad treatment to seek and I want to be very clear about that so I do not recommend if you are suspecting anxiety or OCD that you just go to a general mental health clinician or a practitioner And I certainly don't recommend that you go to a life coach, right? You need to go to a licensed clinician who has training and background in anxiety and OCD, who engages in evidence-based care. So these are individuals who are doing cognitive behavioral therapy. If you have OCD, they're doing exposure response prevention, but you want to know that they know what they're doing before they treat and assess, right? Because it's our job to be able to say, yes, this sounds like OCD. Here's the treatment course we'd recommend. Yes, this sounds like early stages of OCD. Your kid doesn't need treatment yet. Here's what you should look for at home. And here's when you should bring them back. Like you want that appropriate education, right? If I'm going doctor with a diagnosis, I just assume um, that they know how to treat it, right? And I tend to trust them that they're going to be able to use the right intervention for what I'm struggling with. And I'd be really upset if I found out that I didn't get better. And it was because they didn't use the most evidence-based intervention, right? That makes the most sense. Unfortunately, and this is kind of a soapbox I could get on for a long time, in the mental health world, that isn't really regulated. So there is not ethical requirements and standards. So anybody with a license can say they treat OCD and they don't, right? I could say I treat schizophrenia, see a ton of schizophrenia patients. And like, that's not my specialty. I should not be treating schizophrenia. Should I be able to assess if I think somebody is, it may have a diagnosis of schizophrenia and refer appropriately? Of course, right? That's a part of of my job doing an assessment. I don't want to be treating someone who may have schizophrenia as OCD, as an OCD having an OCD diagnosis, but I need to stay in my wheelhouse of what my capabilities are and not all mental health clinicians do that. So be weary. My biggest piece of advice is if you look up a clinician and they say they treat like 15 different disorders and that they, they do like 15 different interventions, you should, you should be weary, right? Those of us that you want to go to an expert, right? I treat OCD, anxiety related disorders. That's it. But really, OCD is my specialty. Um, if you're coming to me for BFRBs, I'm going to refer to someone else in town who's actually like, that's their specialty. Um, doesn't mean I wouldn't be able to treat it still much better than a general practitioner, but I want to stay in my wheelhouse. 
No, that's a, a great piece of knowledge um, when you're looking at that. There are so many different things that can be unregulated or have different kind of specifications for. Um, and so a great little tip there and point um, to make sure that when you're looking for a professional that you find the professional that's skilled in that exact thing that you need assistance with for sure. Um, so let's see, you're obviously very successful. You've kind of found that success through kind of your own story. Um, where, where have you been able to, I know you said that you're the national spokesperson. You've obviously been on Dr. Phil. Has there been one national platform that you really think was such a great, not just launching point, but place in your story, in your business um, to really make a difference and to kind of take everything to the next level to allow for peace of mind to grow and to allow for your business to grow? Has there been something that you think was just so amazing? There was one, um, you know, when I, when I did, when I did the public service announcement and campaign for the International OCD Foundation and yeah. it first ever OCD campaign. It was the first time anyone was ever speaking out. I was the first spokesperson. So I was really became like the face of OCD at a young age. And I think that that really made a big difference in the sense that it really allowed. So, so I went on multiple shows. So I did Good Morning America with Barbara Walters. I did The View. I did Dr. Phil. I did all sorts of stuff. And um, I think that it was the combination of all of those. But what I will tell you is that the biggest impact to this day is each talk I do, right? If it impacts one or two people to like understand they may be facing, maybe living with someone or, or themselves maybe struggling or facing an OCD diagnosis, like that's what's most valuable to me. And so I still do, I do talks every day, right? I had four last week and like each and every one is an opportunity to connect with someone that you might make a difference. But um, I don't know. I think that across the board, actually partnering with the International OCD Foundation was the biggest thing I could have ever done because what happened is it was a national foundation that I was able to build, help them build their advocacy platform and really do it on behalf of them, but get good support and coaching and things that made sense. And that is where I get the most feedback. So every day I hear from people that heard my story through IOCDF and they might've ended up watching one of those other shows, but they started at the national organization. And I think that really helped with reputation building. Um, and and was a really big learning curve for me. Like I learned a lot about what is evidence-based care. Like like what how how do I tell my story appropriately? And I will tell you if you watch some of my old talks compared to now, they're very different. And I was in different places, but I was also like really young and didn't quite understand how to describe mental health. Or I wasn't a clinician back then, didn't know how to do treatment. Now it's very different. But being partnered with an organization that I trust and that has a really strong reputation and we work really hard to uphold that, I think that was really the main partnership that made the biggest difference and continues to. That's amazing. Well, and such that speaks volumes for you and how you practice work um, just by saying, you know, if I can just one person, the right person can hear your story that day, then that's what makes a difference. Um, and I think that that can be so impactful um, in the world of mental health and just um, anybody who might be seeking assistance that they're may not feel so lost anymore, that someone might hear them and understand kind of what they need and where to head. Um, so exciting. But then also, so we've talked a lot about everything that you've done kind of out in the world. If there is, if you're kind of jumping back to our amazing members, um, if a league member is looking for how to get engaged or launch in the community a little bit more, you have your hands in so many different things, but what would kind of your piece of encouragement be for kind of stepping out into that first role and kind of letting it grow from there? 
Yeah, I talk about this a lot. I think there's two pieces that are really important. Number one, stay in your wheelhouse. So don't try to be something you're not. Like don't try, right? It's like, where is my niche area and what do I specialize in? Or am I am I really like excited about and passionate about? Number two, make sure that you are not replicating what's already out there, right? Every day I hear people saying like, oh, I'm going to go do this and I need support. And I'm like, this has been being done for five years. Like, that's awesome. But like, why wouldn't you partner with a group that's doing it? Why are we going to try to replicate? So really spend time thinking about what am I going to do different and who can I partner with that, that like can see the need and see the impact that this could have and, or can you partner with someone who's already doing something really exciting? And can you be being on the ground? Can you help move their mission? Can you help be their voice? You know, so really be strategic in that. I see this all the time. Like I cannot explain how many times I see people in the OCD community or whatever, launching this new program or doing this new thing. And it already exists. And it kind of rubs a lot of people the wrong way. Cause you're not going to have people pushing your stuff if they've already been doing this for five years. But right. if you partnered with them and said, Hey, I also want to do this. What can I do? That's different Then you're collaborating. Right. So always team, the big piece for me, when you're talking about nonprofit work, I need you to sit back and think about why you do this at the end of the day. And we shouldn't be doing it for any other reason, except because we want to make a difference. Right. If at the end of the day, every decision you make still comes back to, am I making a difference? And you can answer that question honestly and organically, then on your own, things will build. The second piece, and I talk about this with, with many people who are, who are starting their work is you have to say yes to everything early on. And it's hard. It's exhausting, right? I now say no to a lot of stuff. Yes, I had a speech in Dallas this Saturday, but like, otherwise I don't do weekend talks anymore. I don't do, right? There's things that like at this point, I'm like, okay, I've been doing advocacy for 15 years. And like, I can say no for things that I need to protect, which is like my own family or my own boundaries. And but I say yes to a lot of other things, but it's really important to kind of say like, okay, I have to say yes frequently and don't ever think one opportunity is too small Mm -hmm. because you will be shocked at how that one parent talk you did at a school with 10 people might help build the biggest resources and connections for you to be able to keep spreading your message in the community. And so any talk is meaningful, any talk is purposeful, um, but really think about the message you want to send, right? For me, I don't want to send a message where I just talk about how hard and miserable it is to live with OCD. Yes, that is a part of my story. I talk very openly about that. I don't sugarcoat it. I'm very vulnerable about my struggles and our family's struggles, but I also need to change it and help it be a story of hope and a story of, you know, a belief and understanding that help is available for everyone. And so make sure you think about how to curate your message. Oh, I love that. Such great points for sure. And I know within the league, the other thing I'll add in, sorry to cut you off, is like, don't go to any talk without resources. Because when people then are struggling and they're like, okay, Liz, so what do we do? You need to be able to tell them where to go, who to connect with, what it's going to look like, right? I can tell you in Houston who to go to if you need to use insurance. If you don't have insurance, you need to use Medicaid. If you need sliding scale, if you, you know, like you need to know those things because right. otherwise you show up, you tell your story, you talk about, you know, what, what you want to. And then people are saying, okay, and so what do we do? How do we address it? And you're like, I don't know. Right. right. So make sure you do your work first. Yeah, for sure. And I know inside the league, we have so many amazing resources. Um, we have outside board representatives that sit on different boards. Um, so I feel like there's always a way, a place to get involved. But I love your points about being intentional, staying in your wheelhouse, and obviously doing your homework before you decide to jump in fully and 
start a brand new thing that might exist already. So, so exciting. Talking about a little bit about the Houston community. I know we've kind of dug into it a little bit more. How do you feel like overall the Houston community is championing um, and fostering mental health? (laughs) You know, better than we were 15 years ago, Um, but we're awful. I mean, everyone in the, in the, in the, in the United States, we're, we're doing an awful job. The reality is, is that for someone with OCD, it takes an average of 12 to 16 years to get a proper diagnosis and treatment. We know that if OCD goes untreated, it impacts every aspect of someone's quality of life, work, social um, relationships, you name it. And, you know, and so we've got to change that. We need to be able to take once symptoms start, be able to get someone to treatment, especially I think what, what infuriates me is there's amazing treatment, mm-hmm. right? If we didn't have treatment, it'd be different because it'd be kind of like, okay, like we're still trying to figure all of this out. Right. But, you know, imagine if you had a broken bone, you know what to do. You go to a doctor, you get an x-ray, there's a course of treatment and you understand what, what it's going to look like and, and what you need to do to take care of yourself and get back healthy. Right. We treat the brain so different, right? We're afraid to talk about it. We, again, we, 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 we sit here and say, well, is it bad enough that we need to seek treatment? Like, why are we questioning that? Just seek treatment. Like, let's right. Right, let's get to the right treatment. But it is so hard. And many members are going to resonate with this, that when their kids have been struggling, they've ended up at people who aren't helping them. They're not getting better and they're frustrated and they don't know what to do. Um, you can call me. I'm happy to be that. I'm like, seriously, that's what a half of what I do is I just take calls and help people say like, here's where to go. Here's how to navigate it. But it's so frustrating that you have to get lucky. Um and my parents are the same way, right? We had failed treatment for years and years and years. We kept being told they'd never seen a case like mine. I'll never get better. My parents should accept I'll live in a mental health hospital for the rest of my life. And you just, you don't give up hope as a parent. You keep advocating. But what I worry the most about, especially in our community, are the adults who are struggling and they don't have someone to advocate for them. We're doing okay. We have amazing resources like Harris Health and um, many different places that do great things for mental health and have good resources available in our city compared to some other places, right? But we we're not we're not setting a model here that with like oh we're doing great, right? Um, Across the board, we're struggling and starts in schools. Mm -hmm. Schools have to shift the language around mental health. And it's one thing I will tell you, I've done so many speeches at schools the last year, and I've been so proud to be able to, you know, my school that I grew up and went to wonderful, very expensive private school really struggled with how to support me. And they asked me not to come back due to my mental health condition. And it was really hard for me to be in the throes of mental illness and then lose all my friends and lose the stability of the school I'd been at my whole life. And so schools really have to, I mean, again, they're talking more about it, but I'm still seeing schools be resistant to kids missing a class and going to therapy or to supporting that. So it's like, you can't have both. You can't say like, we're here to support mental illness and we want to help our kids, but like, you can't miss school and you can't right? like, so, you know, I mean, so I think there's just, there's across the board change has to happen, but I will say it's happening. We're seeing the language is shifting and people are much more open to it. The fact that schools are calling me and having me do talks like that's huge. That's a huge shift. So we're getting there. We're getting better, but lots of room for progress. That's progress is always important. Um, is there kind of, would you say, is there one step or one action that a league member could take, whether, um, just a league member, whether a mom, whether a wife, whether, I mean, we're active in the community um, and able, in, a, in a lot of different places, is there kind of one step or one voice that we could take on to kind of move that forward as it's moving? 
So the first thing I would say is contact your schools. You know, all of you as parents have connections at your personal school that's going to go way further than if I'm cold calling and offer to bring a speaker in about mental illness. I'm happy to do that. There's lots of people who are. There's an entire website that's incredible that we just built through IOCDF called anxietyintheclassroom.org. And it has the most up-to-date, amazing resources for teachers, for family members, um, and for the individual living with anxiety. But it is a wonderful resource that we can start sharing with schools and making them aware of so that they can use it and and have resources that are there but you know I think making those connections saying you know hey I heard this person talk they would love to come talk to the school one of the things I do that I love actually more than talks is like parent chats like coffee with parents or whatever where I just do Q&A and I'm just answering questions about anxiety and how how we change our relationship with anxiety what to do if our kid refuses to get out of the school right all these different things right get out of the school goodness get out of the car to go to school right (laughs) but all these different things that become really useful for parents to just hear and to listen to but you know it's really can we help increase education you guys have connections beyond what any of us do because we're a whole network right and each one individual connections yeah Thank you for that. Is there anything in this chat that we didn't cover or that you would like to share with our members or highlight? I mean, I think the biggest piece is that if as a parent, two things I want to say, the first thing I want to say is that oftentimes what we find is that when kids are living with anxiety, OCD, a related disorder, the parents also have their own level of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so there's many times that as parents, we also need to be getting our own treatment. And I don't want any parent to hear me saying like, let's said I have to go to treatment, right? But if you know that your child's anxiety activates yours and that you have this urge to respond or that you're struggling on your own and it's impacting your mental health, don't be afraid to seek treatment. In fact, I would tell you, I want you seeking treatment for you and for your kid to be able to see that like mom's going to treatment, like it's not scary and I can do the same thing. The second is we have to change the language and the households and the schools everywhere we go, but with our children and in our own dialogue and narrative. We all have stigma and anxiety around mental illness. We can pretend we don't, we can say we don't, but it's there in different ways, judgments, stigmas that exist. They need to be addressed because if they're not, your kids will feel them and they will feel the urge to hide and not talk about what's going on. And that's a huge disservice to them because the sooner we can get them to treatment, the better the outcomes will be. And we can prevent these illnesses from increasing and and becoming disabling, right? We can address it right on or very early on and and catch it before it becomes something bigger, right? Before we're at stage four. So really think about stigma and think about the way that it exists in your your household, right? You might be saying, oh, I don't, I don't have any stigma for mental illness. I'm all about people treating it, but like no one in my, we, we won't have to address that in my family. That's a stigma. You will have to address it. One in four people live with a mental health condition. You or someone you know will be impacted at some point. Let's not turn a blind eye because all that does is make it bigger. Such great points. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, It's been so fun to learn about so many things I didn't realize today. Um, I very much fall into the look at my calendar. I'm OCD or so I greatly appreciate you kind of shifting that narrative um, and sharing all these amazing resources. So many amazing resources in our chat. Um, I have to go back really quick though. You mentioned your dad and everyone kind of knowing who he is and that you've been in Houston for a while and you're glad to be back. What is your favorite part about this amazing city? Oh man. Um, I love our community. 
you know, when you think about Harvey and people always talk about my dad opening his doors and he always talks about how like that really wasn't a question or a decision. It's what you do. And it's, he's not the only Houstonian that gives back and does, right? We see it across the board. And um, I really feel like we have a community that cares and I'm just grateful to be a part of it. And I, I do think we can make such a big difference across the board in so many different arenas. But time and time again, we see people taking their story, taking their struggles and using it for good to help other people. And that's something we could be really proud of. I agree with that for sure. Well, I think that is, no, you're so welcome. That's all we have today. I'm grateful that you came on and spent some time and excited for everybody to listen and hear. Um, And can you just one more time, give a quick place back to where we can find you? For sure. So um, I work and I'm full-time at McLean OCD Institute. So you can go to McLean, M-C-L-E-A-N, Houston.org. And then of course you can go to IOCDF.org. That's the International OCD Foundation. Uh, I serve on their board and I'm a spokesperson for them. And that's really the most reputable national organization for OCD. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Liz. I hope that you have a wonderful day and look forward to sharing this with all of our listeners. I'm excited. If I can help in any other way, never hesitate to reach out. Thanks, you guys. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please feel free to share it. We'd love for you to follow us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. Our music is from Ketza and Poddington Bear. Our editor is Stacia Danzig.